Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves, stocked with proof, and cluttered with snacks. Here on top of this old television set, a pack of M&Ms. Oh, does the TV still work? I've listened to everybody on TV and radio. I've read the papers and magazines. I've tried, but I'm still confused. Who's right? What's right? What should I believe? What are the facts? How can I tell? Yeesh! Sounds like something I would say. That's why I come here. To this place. This cabinet of curiosities. A place that stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact. It's all that stands between a reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. It lies in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step through that door to a studio at the Columbia Broadcasting System on election night, 1952. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The big election night, 1952, the year when the United States picks its 35th president. Welcome to election night. But election night 1952 wasn't just any night. Because everything you know about how campaigns are run and how results are announced, polls, targeted advertising, breathless television coverage, edge-of-your-seat computer projections, it all started right here in 1952 with Walter Cronkite just settling in for the long night ahead in CBS Studio 41, 
on the third floor of Grand Central Station, New York. As CBS's coverage begins, the camera pans across a crowded, frantic newsroom. Teletype machines, adding machines, paper spread everywhere, dozens of telephones, some guys smoking at the back of the room near a giant wall map of the United States, a map that CBS will fill out as the returns come in. They couldn't color the states red and blue, because in 1952, hardly anyone had a color TV. Instead, states that went Democrat would be covered with black. Republicans got stripes, not so much elephants as zebras. Balmy weather over most of the United States today, and a record turnout apparently throughout the United States. A record turnout. So many votes to count. This election would change how Americans predicted the outcome of the election. It would change all sorts of things about elections. But let me first remind you who was running. The Republicans put forward as their candidate General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Ike, the general behind D-Day. Military man, grandfather, straight shooter. Republicans came up with the slogan, I like Ike. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, you like Ike. And everybody really did like Ike. This is the election where likability became a thing. For the Democrats, the incumbent, Harry S. Truman, was out. The Democrat who wanted to be in was Illinois Governor Adlai E. Stevenson. Stevenson wasn't affable or folksy like Eisenhower. He was learned and experienced, dignified. You might even say aristocratic. Stevenson had been born to a political family. His grandfather had been Grover Cleveland's vice president. Stevenson held himself above the messiness, the tackiness of campaigns. Trustworthy. He was supposed to be trustworthy. Vote Stevenson, vote Stevenson, a man you can believe in, son. The general versus the governor. Likeable Ike versus the man you can believe in, son. Anyway, like Walter Cronkite said, voting in the 1952 race looked to be a record turnout. A turnout so big that the wire service thought it might take until the next day to count the votes. We're going to be giving you all of the figures just as quickly as we can, but we'll know the results sometime tonight or early in the morning. Results that very night? That would be fast. So fast. Historians sometimes call this era, after the Second World War, the Great Acceleration. There were races, the arms race, the space race, even NASCAR racing started then. But in a bigger way, everything got sped up. Transportation... Communication, production, consumption, everything. Knowledge used to take the form of mysteries, things only God could know, then came facts, then numbers. And then, during the Great Acceleration, numbers began to yield to data, including the votes counted on election night. CBS wanted to count them faster than anyone else. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems sometimes lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore, on the edge of my seat, waiting for the returns to come in. Aside from all those television cameras, there was another machine in the CBS studio on election night, 1952. A machine most Americans had never seen before. A console blinking. 
the development of modern electronic digital computers began with early man who used his digits or fingers to keep track of the things around him. One weapon, two animals, and three wives. Uh, a few thousand years after that caveman, the first general-purpose digital computers were built by the Allies in the Second World War. They were used to calculate missile trajectories and to break codes. After the war, the first commercial digital computer was built by an office equipment company called Remington Rand. I guess because there were more things to count than one weapon, two animals, and three wives. Even through the use of present-day office equipment, it becomes increasingly difficult to process this accumulation to obtain the information we need. So many facts, so many numbers, so much data. Humankind needed a new kind of machine. To meet this need for high-speed data processing, the scientists and technicians of the Eckert-Mockley division of Remington Rand have created a miracle of electronic development. UNIVAC, a complete electronic system for sorting, classifying, computing, and decision-making. The UNIVAC, the Universal Automatic Computer. Remington Rand had sold one to the U.S. Census Bureau to count the 1950 census. Right now, UNIVAC is handling automatically and economically unbelievable volumes of statistical work for the United States Bureau of the Census. Work that formerly took weeks and months to do is now being done in a matter of hours by UNIVAC. Okay, so the Census Bureau needed the machine to count the census. But who else could possibly need a crazy expensive UNIVAC, a machine the size of a small truck? Hardly anyone, it seemed. But Remington Rand wanted to sell them, so they had to keep pitching them and pitching them and pitching them. UNIVAC is rapidly turning out answers. Answers which have profound significance in the lives of all of us. Maybe UNIVAC could count votes. Maybe on election night, UNIVAC could even know the winner before any human could. Maybe the UNIVAC might actually get it right. Because in the last election, everyone had gotten it wrong. Thomas Dewey and his family waited expectantly for concession. In 1948, Truman had run against the Republican governor of New York, Thomas Dewey. All the big pollsters were sure Dewey would win. Reporters were just as sure. The Chicago Tribune went to press early, too early, with 150,000 papers bearing the headline, Dewey defeats Truman. Dear listener, he did not. The man of the people had accomplished a political miracle. At his home in Independence, Missouri, President Truman accepted the congratulations of the nation. TV got it wrong, too. But TV didn't matter in 1948. First, because hardly anyone owned a television set then. And second, the TV coverage in 1948 was basically just live film of radio guys snoozing and waiting for the returns. But in 1952, everything was supposed to be different. People finally had television sets. Watching would be fun. The announcers would call it right. So. Back to election night, 1952. It seems to me that uh, television has certainly come into its own this year. This time, everything seems to be specially designed just for television. CBS had put a lot of effort and money into its coverage, every last bell and whistle. They'd also made it into a race. They really wanted to call the election early. Ideally, they wanted to call the election first. Except they didn't want to call it so early that they'd get it wrong. 
But in case that happened, they needed a scapegoat. Enter the computer. Millions of Americans had televisions, but how many had computers? None. At the time, there were, by my count, six computers in the whole country. It's possible I have my numbers wrong. Remember, I am only human. But here's where what CBS wanted and what Remington Rand wanted lined up perfectly. Remington Rand needed a chance to show how useful computers are, a showcase. CBS needed a stunt and also a scapegoat. It was a match made in heaven. These things tend to seem inevitable after the fact. But of course, history doesn't work that way. Most things happen by accident. A few months before Election Day, a guy from CBS went out to lunch with a guy from Remington Rand. CBS wanted to put in a big order for, you know, typewriters and calculators, the sorts of machines it figured it needed to stock up on for election night. But the Remington Rand guy said, have you considered a univac? CBS's director of news and public affairs, a guy called Sig Mickelson, heard about the lunch. He decided to go to the Remington Rand factory in Philadelphia to take a look. He hopped on the train and went to meet the univac. The machine was a monster, a mass of electronic vacuum tubes interconnected by miles of copper wire and cooled by noisy fans. Mickelson was supposed to meet a colleague of his there in Philadelphia, the dashing CBS correspondent Charles Collingwood. As legend has it, Collingwood was running late. When he arrived, the printer hooked up to the univac, spat out a short message. Collingwood, you are late. Where have you been? This is what's known among historians as a fact too good to check. In the sense that this never happened, but I'm telling you about it because Mickelson said it happened, and I love it. Back to things that did happen. CBS decided to proceed with what it called, I'm not making this up, Project X. Here's the deal they worked out. CBS would get the services of UNIVAC for election night, but the machine would stay in Philadelphia. It was just too big to bring to New York. It weighed 16,000 pounds and had 5,000 vacuum tubes. But the CBS studio in New York needed to look like it had a computer on set. So Charles Collingwood would sit in a UNIVAC-looking thingamajig, a console, that was actually just a dummy, a fake. The giant computer prop at CBS did, however, light up. It blinked for the benefit of viewers at home, as if it were the real electronic brain. Thinking. It's like a Christmas tree light timer, <laughs> basically. And if you watch it long enough, you see the pattern okay. of the lights just repeat. There's nothing, there's nothing happening. I first learned about this story in a dissertation, an amazing dissertation called Battle of the Brains by Ira Chinoy. And I don't say dissertations are amazing all that often. Chinoy is a professor at the University of Maryland. But before he got his PhD, he was the director of computer-assisted reporting at the Washington Post. Before that, he'd been an investigative reporter. I wanted to visit him in his office in Maryland so that we could watch this footage together. Footage that he'd discovered in the archives. It looks great, though. It does look really <laughs> good. And actually, I don't know if you can see it here, but I actually saw one of these uh, when I went out to the Computer History Museum, and mm -hmm. I think it has an ashtray in it, actually. Chinoy and I watched the footage 
where Walter Cronkite and Charles Collingwood, on election night, wait for the first prediction from the machine. And now for uh, perhaps a prediction on how this voting is going, what the vote uh, that is in so far means. Let's turn to that miracle of the modern age, the electronic brain Univac and uh, Charles Collingwood. Collingwood's on live television, looking at a display off screen waiting for a prediction that he's supposed to read out loud. Univac is going to try to predict the winner for us just as early as we can possibly get the returns in. This is not a joke or a trick. It's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know. We hope it'll work. But there's nothing coming in. It's incredibly awkward to watch. They didn't call this stuff cringe TV then, but this is cringe TV. Can you say something, Univac? Have you got anything to say to the television audience? Apparently, the UNIVAC in Philadelphia had made a prediction. It predicted that Eisenhower would win in a landslide. But given that exit polls had the race neck and neck, that prediction seemed bananas. So supposedly, not wanting to screw up, Remington Rand decided not to send that prediction on to CBS in New York. Remington second-guessed its own machine, which left Collingwood hanging, and CBS without a prediction to announce. You're a very impolite machine, I must say. It was as if the whole election had suddenly gone off script, when in fact, so much of the campaign had been so entirely scripted. There's more to this story. There are documents. There is evidence. My producer, Ben, has filed a copy of that campaign script in his desk, here in The Last Archive. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show 
That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So the supercomputer Univac failed its first public audition as the predictor of voter behavior. At least, though, it was something obvious, a giant machine with these blinking lights right there on television. A lot more subtle stuff changed during that election, too. Stuff that's been forgotten, because now it's everywhere. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president, you like I... Television advertising, that was new, too. Not jingles, there'd been campaign songs since forever. But 1952 saw the introduction of a particular kind of television advertising. The targeted political ad. Lately, all political ads are targeted. They're targeted by computers, as unerring as missiles. But in 1952, the targeting was done by hand. And political television advertising was invented by a man named Rosser Reeves. Think Don Draper and Mad Men, but even slicker. The very best Madison Avenue could offer. Rosser Reeves, he was the man. He owned one of the world's biggest rubies. He led the U.S. chess team on a trip to the Soviet Union. He invested in island real estate. He captained yachts. He flew planes. Mainly, though, he created modern television advertising. Reeves decided that there were many advantages to be gained by adopting a new form of political advertising, the short spot commercial. Sig Mickelson, that executive from CBS who brought in the Univac, he knew all about Reeves. He later wrote about it. He had a hunch that the 60-second advertising spot could be used in the way the soap, food, and cigarette companies were using them with spectacular success. In 1952, Reeves took his talents to politics. He went to the Republican convention, the first convention broadcast start to finish on television. Reeves was there, but instead of watching from the convention hall, he watched the keynote speech on TV from a hotel room. The crowds inside the stadium were enthusiastic. But watching the convention on TV, Reeves thought the speeches were dreadful. Too many ideas. Too many words. So he devised a test to see which people remembered better. A televised speech or a televised commercial. Less than 10% of people remembered the speech. 91% remembered the commercial. Reeves thought that was because speeches usually have a lot of ideas. Too many for television. He believed in something he called the unique selling proposition. The USP. What is a USP? It's a theory of the ideal selling concept. It is a condensation, a verbal shorthand, if you will, of what makes a campaign work. It is the hidden secret of literally thousands of the most successful advertising campaigns ever written. Reeves often made pitches over meetings at Manhattan's swanky 21 Club, where everyone was always several martinis deep. He'd tell them that his unique selling proposition had three rules. Number one, each advertisement must make a proposition to the consumer. Not just words, not just product puffery. Each advertisement must say to each reader, buy this product and you will get this specific benefit. Number two, the proposition must be the one that the competition either cannot or does not offer. Number three, the proposition must be so strong that it can move the mass millions. That's from Reeves' book, Reality in Advertising. My producer Ben and I decided to go get a copy of it. So we went to the basement of Widener Library at Harvard together. 
And when I say basement, I mean that in the deepest sense. To get to Reeves, you take the elevator four stories down, and then you walk through a tunnel. So the PC tunnel, it, it's so much better than it used to be. There used to be these big plastic buckets down here because they're just all these, see all these pipes? They would just right. do it. <laughs> but you know what, like, what is but that It still smell? has that humidity. No, it's a humidity treatment smell. I see. You know? I think it would humiliate Reeves to know this, but after you go through that sweaty tunnel, you have to go down another level, down another elevator, to finally get to the stacks and the shelf where his book is housed. His best advertisements all follow those three rules of the USP. So, Wonder Bread helps build strong bodies in 12 ways. Anison gives you fast, fast, fast relief. But my personal favorite was the campaign he wrote for M&M's. Which hand has the M&M chocolate candy? Not this hand. That's ordinary chocolate candy. It's melted. But this one, there's no chocolate mess. Because M&M's milk chocolate melts in your mouth. Not in your hand. Reeves said Republicans should run ad spots and sell Eisenhower like M&M's. Ike's campaign signed him right up, even though Eisenhower himself had yet to be convinced. Reeves took six weeks off and holed himself up in a hotel to write ad copy. He had all of Eisenhower's speeches sent over, but he didn't read them. I was too busy with the political maelstrom to sit down personally and read all of Eisenhower's rather dreary speeches. So he had other people do that. They drew up a list of topics that the general favored. Reeves showed that list to George Gallup, the pollster, who ran some numbers and told Reeves which three topics pulled best with voters. One, corruption in government. Two, high prices and high taxes. Three, war. Those three topics still pull well. They're evergreens. Today, though, computer-driven targeted advertising, polling, and election predictions are all tangled up on your iPhone as if they're one thing. But they first got tangled up in 1952, when the pollsters and the admin were actually doing much the same thing as the UNIVAC was trying to do, running the numbers, coming up with a prediction. Are we okay with that? I mean, we are, because this is our world. But still, if we, here in the last archive, are wondering who killed truth, I'm looking at you, Rosser Reeves. Reeves had hired a friend of his to run the numbers for him, a guy named Michael Levin. Ben brought copies of what he found in the archives when we went looking for Reeves's book, 50,000 Leagues Beneath the Library. This one is Michael Levin's plan. It's called How to Ensure an Eisenhower Victory in November. And this is what Reeves commissioned his numbers guy, Levin, who worked at a different firm, yeah, yeah. to write up about basically how to target the ads, where to run them, what counties, um, how often. It's a smoking gun of micro-targeted advertising. It's right here. We have gun. it right here. Levin carved the country into voting blocks. The Southern vote, the Black vote, the farm vote, the middle class. He saw it this way. Since Roosevelt, most of the country had voted Democratic. But that could change. Now that the economy was good, people weren't so keen on paying taxes anymore. They'd rather keep their money and spend it on some of the things they saw in all those television ads, dishwashers, and dog food. To make the electoral math work in Republicans' favor, Levin said they needed to flip the vote in 49 counties in 12 states where they'd narrowly lost the last election. Levin called this block of states the Great Lakes Girdle. This was at a time when, by the way, people called parts of the country girdles, and now we call them belts, which is sad to me. Anyway, forget kissing babies, shaking hands, and meeting voters. 
cultivating civic life and political debate. Instead, Levin said, divide the electorate into market segments and then blitz those key counties with custom-made TV ads. Is there a new way of campaigning that can guarantee victory for Eisenhower in November? The answer is yes. Most people don't know the power of spots. However, here are the cold facts. The humble radio or TV spot can deliver more listeners for less money than any other form of advertising. This pitch, you may have noticed, sounds a little bit different from the Levin plan, but they were filed together in Rosser's papers in the archives. This is kind of like lipstick on a pig, though. Like, at least Reeves is... Just lipstick, no pig? Yeah. (laughs) Here's the turn. Where commercial television advertising becomes political television advertising. Just lipstick, no pig. Let us repeat that. The humble radio or TV spot can deliver more listeners for less money than any other form of advertising. It is a way of having a big town meeting, but letting 60 million people hear all the questions and answers. This technique is ideally suited to Eisenhower's warm personality, as opposed to the cold intellectual approach of Adlai Stevenson. And because they are simple, because they are quick, because they are short and uncomplicated, the public will remember them. Like candy, but hate dirty hands? Problem solved. Vote Eisenhower. In other words, they will penetrate, yes, they will penetrate the brains of 60 million critical voters where the more complicated and more elaborate political speeches won't be remembered. And it's what the critical voters have in their brains when they go into the polling booths that counts. But before he could get to voters' brains, the M&M man first had to get General Eisenhower on board. Eisenhower was worried that these spots would be undignified. After all, at the time, Eisenhower was president of Columbia University. He wasn't as appalled as Adlai Stevenson would have been, but he was still worried. So Reeves met the general for lunch, probably over scotch, and wore him down. Well, general, do you think it's all right for a candidate to make a 30-minute speech on television or radio? Yes. Or would it be dignified to make a 15-minute speech? Uh, Yes. Would it be in order, perhaps, to make a five-minute speech? Yes, I am sure a five-minute speech would be in order. If we could cut that speech to one minute, is there anything wrong with that? (laughs) Okay, let's go ahead. All right. That's Reeves' account. Anyway, they filmed the campaign spots all in one day in Manhattan. The original idea was to run the spots in those targeted markets. We now call them swing precincts. Eisenhower answers America. In each spot, an everyday person asks the general a question. Reeves had Eisenhower's answers written on huge posters so Eisenhower wouldn't have to wear his glasses to read them. The story goes that Eisenhower worked through Reeves' scripts so fast that Reeves grabbed his typewriter and started to dash off new scripts. Spots on the spot. General, the Democrats are telling me I never had it so good. Can that be true when America is billions in debt, when prices have doubled, when taxes break our backs, and we are still fighting in Korea? It's tragic, and it's time for a change. They filmed 40 spots that day. A few days later, the crew grabbed some tourists from around Midtown to go on camera. The tourists were then prompted to ask the very questions Eisenhower had already answered. 
Then, Reeves' producers stitched the spots together. They were the first television ads featuring an American presidential candidate. You know what things cost today. High prices are just driving me crazy. Yes, my mamie gets after me about the high cost of living. It's another reason why I say it's time for a change. Time to get back to an honest dollar and an honest dollar's worth. At the filming, someone overheard Eisenhower say, To think that an old soldier should come to this. But Rosser Reeves was delighted. Here was the unique selling proposition president. But wait, the Democrats had a new television strategy, too. A man you can believe in, son. Adley E. Stevenson would go on TV and read his speeches, speeches that were at the shortest nearly a half an hour long. And when he went over that time, the networks would just cut him off mid-sentence. The Stevenson campaign was bringing sticks to a knife fight. The tragedy of it all was that Stevenson had a lot of important things to say about the problems confronting the nation. Better we lose the election than mislead the people, and better we lose than misgovern the people. Help me to do the job in this autumn of conflict and of campaign. Help me to do the job in these years of darkness, of doubt, and of crisis, which stretch beyond the horizon of tonight's happy vision. And we will justify our glorious past and the loyalty of silent millions who look to us for compassion, for understanding, and for honest purpose. Honest purpose was one of Stevenson's big themes. Treat people like citizens. Don't treat us like idiots, like consumers who can be predicted and persuaded. But Stevenson wasn't any good at getting that message across on television. Democrats, desperate, did everything they could. They even got a hold of Rosarese's advertising plan, which was supposed to be top secret. It made Stevenson's campaign advisors steaming mad. They've invented a new kind of campaign. A campaign conceived not by men who want us to face the crucial issues of the day, but by the high-powered hucksters of Madison Avenue. They've conceived not an election campaign in the usual sense, but a super-colossal, multi-million dollar production designed to sell an inadequate ticket to the American people in precisely the way they sell soap, toothpaste, hair tonic, or bubblegum. Or M&M's. Stevenson's campaign even asked the FCC to look into the legality of the Republican campaign ad spots. They figured, this stuff's got to be illegal. Wasn't it an affront to everything a democracy stood for? Faith in the voter to weigh the hard facts and make the call? But the FCC decided there was nothing to be done. In the end, Republicans spent $1.5 million on television advertising in 1952 more than 10 times what Democrats spent. Also, Stevenson never appeared in any of the Democrats' ads. Amazingly, by election day, Stevenson was still a strong contender. He and Eisenhower were neck and neck, at least as the polls had it. I've got those predictions on an old yellowed punch card tacked to a bulletin board, here in The Last Archive. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. 
Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Election Day 1952 began normally enough. It just didn't end that way. At 7.15 that morning, Dwight Eisenhower's train pulled into Grand Central Station, just a few floors beneath the CBS News studio. Ike and Mamie traveled to the Upper West Side to vote, and then they retired to their apartment. That evening, they'd go to the Commodore Hotel to wait for the results. Adla E. Stevenson, meanwhile, was at the governor's mansion in Illinois. I've talked before here on The Last Archive about the importance of historical imagination. And I'm trying, but I just can't picture Stevenson watching the returns on television. The rest of the country was watching, though, and a whole lot of them were watching CBS. This election had been all about television and advertising, and now the election coverage featured a first-of-its-kind product placement for the computer, the Univac. But like I've said, that part was going badly. Have you got a prediction for us, Univac? I have to say, I totally feel for Charles Collingwood. He's on live television. The fate of CBS News probably seemed to turn on how well the network would cover this election. They'd spent gazillions on this insane production. And it's a dud. Univac, our fabulous mathematical brain, is down in Philadelphia mulling over the returns that we've sent him so far. He's sitting there in his corner, humming away. Uh, A few minutes ago, I asked him what his prediction was, and he sent me back a very caustic answer for a machine. He said that if we continue to be so late in sending him the results, it's going to take him a few minutes to find out just what the prediction is going to be. So, he's not ready yet with his uh, prediction, but we're going to go to him in just a little while. Univac be damned, the Eisenhower campaign was getting its own results by phone over at the Commodore Hotel. A confident Eisenhower was getting ready to celebrate. 
CBS, though, still didn't want to call the race. And as I was saying, that as a great believer in the machine, we're having a little bit of trouble with UNIVAC. It seems that he's rebelling against the human element. About 10.30, CBS finally got a prediction from the machine. Yes, UNIVAC finally come through. Good. Give it to us, huh? We've got Stevenson, 20 states. Eisenhower, 28 states. That adds up to an electoral vote for Stevenson of 217, for Eisenhower, 314. A prediction at last, but not an outcome that just about anyone watching closely couldn't have predicted by that time of the night. And then, a half an hour before midnight, UNIVAC seemed to go entirely off the rails. It predicted that while Eisenhower would win the electoral vote, Stevenson would win the popular vote. No human was predicting anything like that, not even Walter Cronkite. Charlie, very interesting indeed on that UNIVAC prediction. Uh, we, uh, we who are only human and uh, have to operate with uh, flesh and blood instead of with uh, electronic gadgets, uh, I still think this thing looks like it's pretty much on the Eisenhower side at the moment. I know it seems as though UNIVAC was a complete disaster on election night 1952, but it turned out that early in the night, UNIVAC had predicted an Eisenhower landslide. The computer men at Remington Rand, thinking the election was neck and neck, and afraid of the machine making a mistake on live television, just hadn't passed that prediction on to CBS. Remington Rand's entire interest in collaborating with CBS had been to demonstrate the usefulness of a general-purpose digital computer. What if it failed? Disaster. So the UNIVAC people, after suppressing that early prediction of an Eisenhower landslide, had gotten desperate and had tinkered with the data to see if they could get the machine to make a prediction that didn't seem nuts. The chances are 100 to 1 in favor of General Eisenhower. I might note that UNIVAC is running a few moments behind Ed Morrow, however. Just before midnight, after veteran CBS reporter Edward R. Morrow called the election for Eisenhower, CBS had finally announced that early UNIVAC prediction. To viewers at home, it looked like the UNIVAC was the slowest of all predictors. Remington Rand had some explaining to do. Well, we had a lot of troubles tonight. Strangely enough, they were all human and not the machine. The Remington Rand guy tried desperately to explain what had gone wrong. The problem, he insisted, had never been with the UNIVAC. That we should have had nerve enough to believe the machine in the first place. It was right. We were wrong. Fifteen minutes later, an aide to Adlai Stevenson told reporters that the candidate was conceding. He'd lost to the guy with the 30-second TV ads in a vote predicted by a TV gimmick, the supercomputer Univac. Stevenson, after delivering a concession speech, headed back to the governor's mansion, where guests had gathered. One of them tried to boost his spirits, told him that he'd educated the country. Stevenson supposedly said, glumly, that the American people had flunked his course. He'd wanted his campaign to show that truth can win. He wanted to demonstrate that you could run for president and win the White House by talking honestly about actual issues in all their complexity, not by making 30-second ad spots that turn politics into M&Ms. But truth didn't win, and the American people failed Professor Stevenson's exam, which, when you think about it, was a lousy way to run a campaign. No wonder he lost. But so did the country.
1952 set a new course for the United States and for American politics, the way every election does, by changing our president. But it also changed how we elect a president, and it even changed how we know things. The day after the election, Edward R. Murrow talked about voters the way Americans like to think of themselves, self-determining and unknowable. To me, the most impressive thing about tonight is again the demonstration that the people of this country are sovereign, that they are unpredictable, and that somehow in a fashion that is as mysterious to pollsters as it is to reporters, the great normal majority in this country made up its mind as to the man it wanted to lead it. Maybe pollsters and advertising agencies and computers can predict how voters behave. Maybe they can change how voters behave. But should they? What if the very accuracy of those predictions means that citizens lose faith in the evidence of what they see with their own eyes, lose faith in the political process? What if they really take to heart the idea behind the well-targeted ad campaign and the computerized prediction and conclude that we behave as predictable consumers, not as individual citizens? Four years later, during the election of 1956, Adlai Stevenson took on Eisenhower again. And this time, he too appeared in commercials. It's wonderful how sitting right here in my own library, thanks to television, I can talk to millions of people that I couldn't reach any other way. They were TV commercials, but really, they were anti-TV commercials. I can talk to you, yes, but I can't listen to you. I can't hear about your problems, about your hopes and your fears. To do that, I've got to go out and see you in person. And that's what I've been doing. So finally, I hope that the next time we meet, it will be person-to-person and face-to-face. Stevenson wanted you to know it was all props, all fake. TV ads were just as fake as dummy computers with Christmas lights. But it was no use, and it was too late. Citizens had become consumers, shopping for the best deal. Politics had become just another con. The hard sell. Face-to-face, fat chance. Campaigns would get glossier and glitzier. Elections would be predicted by faster and faster computers. In 1956, President Eisenhower had new ads, too. Lower taxes. Higher taxes. Record employment. Unemployment. Peace. War. Highest wages. Lower pay. States' rights. Centralization of government. Whoa, stop! I've tried. I've listened to everybody on TV and radio. I've read the papers and magazines. I've tried, but I'm still confused. Who's right? What's right? What should I believe? What are the facts? How can I tell? Voters became irritated and impatient, looking for the quick fix. Eisenhower answers America. The easy answer. What are the facts? When politics becomes big business, the facts of the matter become harder and harder to tell, especially outside of the last archive. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadefhafri. Our editor is Julia Barton. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell and Martine Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. 
Original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Hinson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick and the American Repertory Theater, to Alex Allenson and the Bridge Sound and Stage, to Simon Leake and to the Wisconsin Historical Society. Footage provided by Veritone. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin Cuts, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat-earth theory and why some still believe the Earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.